Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in the third sermon of a four-sermon series uh, during Advent. Uh, our first Sunday, we talked about the promise of Christmas past, and we looked at Isaiah's prophecy about the coming uh, Davidic king, the one who would come and be David, a man who struggled and uh, sinned just like you and I do. But his promise was from God that there would be one who would follow after him, who would be the perfect uh, King David. And so we looked at that promise. Uh, we wrestled with the reality of Christmas present uh, in the passage just, or the chapter just preceding this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we looked at the challenges uh, that faced the disciple of Jesus, but the reality that this present life and the struggles that we find ourselves in does not compare to what awaits us. And so uh, we were challenged last week by God's Word to look kind of behind the scenes uh, at what is unseen and to fix our eyes on that and that hope uh, that we have for the reality of the day in which we live. This morning we're going to consider the hope of Christmas future. We're going to look at just a couple of minutes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Uh, in 1980, on the fall of 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, a Republican, decided that he was going to run for president. He got the Republican nomination and he ran against the incumbent president, the Democrat, Jimmy Carter. And Ronald Reagan, in uh, November of 1980, won that election uh, in what is now considered one of the greatest landslide victories in election history in the United States. He carried 44 uh, out of the 50 states. He captured 489 of the electoral college votes. Uh, electoral college votes, uh, Carter got 49 in comparison. And Reagan won that election in a landslide for a lot of different reasons. But if you boiled it down to one thing, it would be the statement that he made or the question that he asked over and over again in the course over again in the course election was over the election was probably over in september barack obama had a similar type of question or challenge that he put before the american people in this last election he said if you vote it was over the election was probably over. politics this morning i'm not here to to endorse uh, reagan or obama but simply to make a point both of those men we're suggesting that if we elected them, there would be great hope for our future. And they built their campaigns upon, I believe, the intrinsic value in every human heart that says there is hope. There is a promise. There is a chance for things to get better. It's a challenge now. It's a struggle now. There are issues in our society. There Maybe there are personal issues that are facing you and facing me. And deep in our hearts, we want to know, is there hope? And that's why I, one of the words I picked as I kind of robbed from Dickens on the idea of Christmas past, present, and future was this idea of hope, the hope of Christmas future. And what does Scripture have to say about that? Because if you're putting your hope in a political candidate, I don't care which side of the, the aisle you want to fall on, uh, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, your hope is misplaced. But is there a hope for the Christian community in this day and age? And is there a hope for the greater community? Is there a hope for our society? for the culture of the 21st century. I believe that Paul gives us a resounding answer, yes, and lays that out for us. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 16, in just uh, five verses this morning, verses 16 through 21. You can follow along on the screen or you can follow along in your own Bibles. I hear the word of God. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this was from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we have sung of the hope of Christmas, that Emmanuel has come, God with us. We set apart that night as holy, the night when Christ was born, the night when the star shone and the promise came to earth in the flesh. So we call one another to worship. Come and worship Christ the Lord, this one who is the newborn king. Father, I fear that sometimes the traditions of Christmas uh, become rote. It becomes too familiar. and Perhaps we lose the mystery and the joy and the astonishment that occurred some 2,000 years ago when you intervened on our behalf, when you decided that you were going to save the world from darkness, the results of our own sin and our own missteps, our own rebellion. You determined that you were going to reconcile yourself with people from every tribe and every language and every nation and every generation under the sun. And that's why we're here this morning, Father, because of the hope, the hope that was born that morning and a hope that is eternal. Father, we need this message. Many of us have uh, struggled with that hope. Many of us have lost sight of that hope, or perhaps no one has ever introduced us to it before. So, Lord Jesus, as we gather together now to worship you with our minds and with our hearts, I pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would guide us, that you would proclaim your message this morning. Lord, if we're here to hear what Tom has to say, we're wasting our time. Father, you know the sin in my heart. You know the struggle. You know the the bad decisions, poor choices. If we're relying on man to give us hope, Father, we are lost. Father, I confess my sin to you and freely acknowledge that it is only through Christ Jesus that there is hope, but that is a perfect hope. And I pray that you would come and share that with your people this morning, every person in this room. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Every person in this room. I'm only going to give you five. I wish you could back the tape up on that one. I'm going to give you five reasons for hope this morning that are found in this particular passage of Scripture, uh, and hopefully they will have a very practical application for each one of us, whether we consider ourselves a disciple of Jesus or whether we're considering ourselves someone who might be seeking and wondering uh, or someone who's skeptical of that. Hopefully uh, this will be a bit of, a, of an encouragement and a challenge for all of us. The her- first hope is this. Hope for Christmas future is in the disciples who have a realigned outlook on life. Hope for Christmas future is in disciples with a realigned outlook on life. Verse 16, Paul says this, From now on, therefore, 
we, he's talking about himself and his fellow, fellow followers of Jesus, so he's including those of us here this morning who would consider ourselves that. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him that way no longer. Paul says, I've had a change of thought, heart. I've had a change of thinking. I've had a change of perspective on two different levels. The first one is how I look at my fellow man. And what Paul is saying by saying we no longer see someone according to the flesh, what it means to see someone in that way simply means that you have a perspective of self-preservation. You judge people or you label people according to how you're going to interact with them. So you might say that person is a friend or that person is as a foe or as an enemy. You might say to yourself, I wonder how that person uh, could help me. Or you think to yourself, I wonder how that person could hurt me. And do I need to be defensive? Do I need to be careful in how I approach a relationship with them? You're always on your guard in human relationships. And you're always seeking first and foremost above everything else to protect yourself, to look out for number one, so to speak. Paul says we used to regard folks that way, but we do so no longer. Now what Paul says is we see everyone through the lens of the gospel. We don't put labels on people anymore. We don't first ask whether they're rich or they're poor, whether they're a person of influence that could help us, or they're a person who's, who's needy, who's simply going to waste our time. We don't use uh, religious labels, Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Jew, friend or foe. Now we see everyone is created in God's image, and those for whom we give respect and dignity. And we say, okay, Paul, well, why? what's the change? Has mankind changed? Has mankind been, been more caring and more gracious? Has, has peace on earth really happened so that you can let your guard down? And Paul would say, absolutely not. <laughs> man, mankind is unequivocally lost and a rebellion against God. It isn't man that's changed, but it's my heart that's changed. And the reason his heart has changed is because he says, we used to regard Christ according to the flesh, <coughs> excuse me, but we regard him thus no longer. The change that's really taken place is Paul's view of Jesus. Paul used to see Jesus as a person of no consequence. He may have even seen him as a lunatic. I think it would be difficult to argue that before he became the Apostle Paul, uh, young Saul, who was taught and raised in, in Jerusalem under the great teacher Gamaliel, uh, it's pretty, although the Bible doesn't say this, I'm sure that Paul, young Saul, heard of Jesus. He may have even witnessed his teaching on some level when he was a young teenager. And Saul's reaction to the Messiah was, I want nothing to do with him. In fact, he would probably say he's a lunatic and he's worthy of death. Saul was involved in holding the, the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen to death, who was the first person to die for his faith in Christ. And yet Saul had a change of heart. He had a change that was radical, a transformation that took place. He says, now we see Christ as the instrument of God's grace. Now we see Jesus as the foundation for our approach to life. Let me read for you. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But let me read for you how Paul describes this. The next book over from 2 Corinthians is Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, I've had a radical change of heart, and I now am putting my faith unequivocally in Christ. And because I'm doing that, I don't regard people in the same way. It's not people that have changed. It's me. 
And that makes all the difference in the world. Do you think it makes a difference that there are disciples of Jesus in the world today? Do you think it makes a difference in our culture? Do you think it makes a difference in human relationships that God is transforming and capturing the hearts of men and women and drawing them to himself? I began to make a short list of how I see the difference. I see it in human relationships and that people are no longer objects to be used for my benefit, but rather they are recipients of God's common grace and people for whom I should have compassion and care and kindness. We no longer see someone's skin color first, but we look at the condition of the heart and we judge them according to their character. A spouse is not someone with whom I must fight to prove I'm right, but rather it's one for whom I will fight and give my life. The needy are no longer an inconvenience or a nuisance, but they're an opportunity to help someone in the name of Jesus. And every light Life is of great value, not just those that are outside the womb. As Paul says in his, past, in his writings in the book of Romans, the love of Christ compels us because we regard Christ no longer in the flesh, but we regard him as Savior. The question that we have to ask this morning if we are disciples of Jesus is, is that our creed? <laughs> is that how we live our lives? Is that how we base our decisions because we see Christ no longer in the flesh? Does that have the impact that it ought to have in our lives? I, I was reading an article uh, about uh, folks that are uh, outside the church and their observations of people inside the church, and there were a vi- variety of different quotes, and one of them simply said, you Christians need a lot of help. <laughs> I thought, there's, a, there's a, an ugly but probably true statement. <laughs> you know, it says something about whether or not we are seeing Christ in a new light, because you can't see Jesus in a new light and not see your fellow man in a new light. The hope for Christmas future is in disciples who have a realigned outlook in life. The second hope for Christmas future is in the fact that this change has already begun. Look at verse 17 with me. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Now, this phrase, in Christ, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. If you read through his epistles, uh, you'll find it at least 25 times where Paul uses that phrase, in Christ. What does, he, what does he mean by that? Well, Paul's understanding of being in Christ means that there's an intimacy. There's a deep and abiding bond between me and the Lord Jesus. There is a union of our souls so to speak. There's an identification with Christ as both Savior and Lord. And if you're here this morning, you're wondering about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, you can boil it down to that simple phrase. We committed our lives to Christ. We com- commit ourselves to him as our Lord. He's now the one that's directing our steps. He's now the one whom we are submitting our will. So he is the one we are following. So Paul uses this phrase in Christ, and then he reinforces that he comes underneath it by saying, that means you're a new creation. Now notice that the way Paul writes this is that's a done deal. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not will be, not hopefully someday might achieve that. But in fact, today, right now, because of what Christ did on the cross, because the faith I've put in him, From this point forward, I am a new creation. I don't have to wait to get to heaven to see the impact or the effect of my relationship with Jesus in my life. I could preach probably two or three sermons on what it means to be a new creation. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to give you just a couple of observations about what it means to be a new creation. The first one is this, that you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. 
The word I would use there is influence. You come under the direct influence of God himself. The Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you to follow Christ. That's part of the new creation. The second description I would give is that you have a love for and a willingness to follow Jesus. And the word I'm going to use there is affection. So not only are you under God's influence, but there's an affection in your heart. The greatest compliment anybody can pay me is to say, you know what, Tom, it really looks like you love Jesus. (laughs) That's the greatest compliment I could ever hear in my whole life because my heart has been captured by him. And I, and I want captured by him. And I, what, where he's going, I want to go. What he's doing is what I want to do. I'll give you a really stupid example of this. I was in Top Hat Cigar Shop the other day. I go there quite often. If you're thinking of what's the perfect gift for the pastor, not that I want to bring that up, but, um, and my mother would shoot me. She'll come in the second service. I won't use that in the second service. Um, where was I going with that? Oh yeah. Devotion. I'm in Top Hat Cigar the other day, and the, the young lady that works there, uh, her name is Danelle, and we become buddies. And, uh, and I've been trying to, as, as Christmas Eve approaches, I've been trying to kind of find my casual buddies around Kirkwood, you know, uh, the guy that manages the Einstein shop and Danelle, and I'm inviting them to come to Christmas Eve service. Hey, come on, we're going to have a great time at Christmas Eve and come at 4.30 or 11 or whatever, just trying to invite friends. Uh, probably a lot of you are doing that too. And she said, hey, I, I, I've got a, a cousin who just found out she has cancer. And she told me her name. And she goes, you know, I, I know you're a pastor. Would you just please pray for her? And uh, I said, sure, I'll be happy to. And, and uh, she was ringing me out. And I said, hold on. She said, what? I said, we're going to pray. You asked me to pray. We're praying right now. And uh, she looked around. And I looked around. There wasn't anybody in the shop. So I think she felt a little more comfortable at that point. I said, you know, come on, like, grab hands and let's just pray for her right now. We just prayed right there in the spot. Now, that's, that's not a big deal. That's just simply having a devotion to the kingdom of God. Somebody asked me. <laughs> To engage with them on a spiritual level, I'm not going to wait till next Tuesday. <laughs> I'm not going to put it on my prayer list. I'm going to say, hey, that, great, God gave me that opportunity. As my heart, as, as a new creation, my devotion changes and I'm attracted to God's priority. And then one other one just real quickly, not only influence and affection and devotion, but I'm under new management and I simply call this ownership. <laughs> if I'm a new creation in Christ, that means God's in control now. I kind of take my hand off the steering wheel, so to speak, and I let him drive the car. The hope for Christmas future is in the fact that in Christ we are a new creation, which means the change has already begun. Am I perfect yet? Am I I already, you know, ready to to step into heaven? Absolutely not. i got a long way to go. But I am in Christ. And if you're a disciple of his, you are in Christ. And you're a new creation. And, And one of the applications of this is not just how we approach and look at the world around us, But I also want to warn you and get you on your toes spiritually a little bit this morning. As you listen to this, as you look at a verse like that, one of your temptations is going to be to say, you know what, I'm not really a new creation. (laughs) If you knew my thought life and and the stuff I come up with, you know, I'm not a new creation. If you know the way I treated someone, boy, I'm, I'm not a new creation. Now, friends, God has told you if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a new creation, okay? That's not up for debate. He's not offering as a suggestion. He's telling you the spiritual transaction that has happened in your life. So if you're thinking that that's not true, where are you getting that idea? There's only one or two places you could get it from. You're getting it from yourself or you're getting it from the evil one. And we need to be on our toes and we need to be on our guard for our own hearts and our own souls so that when Satan attacks us and accuses us, says, you can't be a disciple, you're no good. You're not a new creation. You're simply an old creation. The, the old stuff is still lingering and holding on to you. You've got to say, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> That's not who I am in Christ. I might not be perfect yet, but I belong to him. And there's a new creation that's taken place in my heart and my soul, and I'm not going back to the way things used to be.
The third hope for Christmas future lies in God's relational restoration. God's relational restoration. Look at verses 18 and 19. All of this, this this new creation, all of regarding Christ as Savior, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the, uh, their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul says that, that mankind was alienated from God. We were alienated from God through our own immoral choices, through our own immoral actions, for, from our flawed and broken hearts. We were alienated from God. We had offended God. And yet God, his intention is to restore our ability to have intimacy with him. God was the offended one. God was the one whom, who, who was sinned against, so to speak. Uh, when I, you know, when I uh, practice greed in my life or pride or, or I'm rude to somebody or there, there's some sin in my life, I'm actually offending God before I'm offending anyone else. Cindy, my wife, might be the, the recipient of a harsh remark, might be some anger in my heart, and she might be the recipient of that, but I've offended God first because God's the one who created Cindy to be my wife. God's the one who said, you take care of her, you protect her, you love her as Christ loved the church. And when I sin against Cindy, I'm first sinning against God. That's why David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight when he was thinking back to his sin with Bathsheba, which was adultery and murder. And so we need to see that God is the offended one. And yet he is the one that takes the initiative to reconcile. Paul used that word reconcile four times in these two verses. This is not the normal action for the one who is offended. Here's what Simon Kitzmacher says about God being the one who takes the step. God did not cause the alienation between himself and us. And therefore, he did not have to reconcile us to himself. Yet in love, God reconciles us to himself through the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. For this reason, Paul says that God brings about the restoration through Christ, that is through Jesus' redemptive work. The phrase through Christ alludes to his death and resurrection, which brings about both the new creation and reconciliation. Kitzmacher is saying, and Paul is saying, something astounding has happened. The one who is offended is the one who is taking the steps towards reconciliation. Think about this if you're married. Think about this in a marriage relationship. If your spouse offends you, or if you're in a work environment and you have a partner in work or something, and they offend you, they they sin against you, and they're in the wrong, okay? This is not one of those gray areas where it might have been some of your fault and some of their fault, okay? This is one where you are the one who has been wrong. You're the one who has been sinned against. What's your reaction? What do you do? I know what I typically do. I fold my arms. And I step back, and I, and I wait for the apology, right? I wait for the person to acknowledge that they've done something wrong. And that's typically how we go through our lives. Um, I kind of forgot to mention to Cindy that we're having a staff Christmas party tonight at the office until a couple days ago. And um, I said, and we're hosting. And uh, she said, uh, after she kind of picked herself up off the floor, well, how are we decorating the place? And I said, decorating what place? <laughs> she said, we're having a Christmas party with no Christmas decoration. So Cindy spent yesterday waiting, you know, going out and, and doing all the shopping for all the decorations and getting all that stuff together, okay? Cindy was the one who was sinned against. <laughs> Cindy was the one who now can sit back and fold her arms and, uh, and wait for the apology to come. 
Cindy was the one who now can sit back and fold at the dinner tomorrow night so the staff can hear a couple of things. But she was the one that insisted on putting herself in a position where she could offer forgiveness. And that's what God's done. God is the offended one, and yet he says, I'm not going to wait for man to move towards me. He'll never do it. He'll never be able to get there. I'm going to take the step of reconciliation, and I'm going to insist on creating an opportunity where man can come to me forgiveness. And that's why one of the hopes for Christmas future lie in God's relational restoration, that he's going to bring it back together. The fourth hope we have is this. Hope for Christmas future is in you and in me as disciples of Jesus. Look at verse 20. Paul says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What do ambassadors do? Ambassadors represent their governments, right? They speak on behalf of their government. Our government, our government physically is the United States, okay? But outside of that, on the spiritual realm, on the deeper realm, our ruler is the Lord God himself. And he has one central message, and Paul hits on it here. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you want to know what you're supposed to do as an ambassador, it is this simple. Go to people and say, be reconciled to God. And when they say, what does that mean? You point them to Jesus. Those are the marching orders we have. And we speak with confidence to a lost and hurting people around us because we have the opportunity as Christ's ambassadors, as Christ's representatives. It's not just the, the pastor of the church. It's not just the church staff. It's not just the elders, but it's each one of us. Paul includes all of us. We have been given this opportunity by Christ. I was uh, reading the other day of the top 25 jobs to have in 2009. Guess what number nine was? Clergy. <laughs> number nine was clergy. And I read the little paragraph on it, and it said these are hard times, and people are going to be, are kind of be coming back to church, so to speak, to looking for answers. So it, you, you kind of have job security when it's coming back to church, so to speak, to looking for A great job to have in 2009 is to be a disciple of Jesus, is to be an ambassador for Christ, because people are hurting. I mean, you, you don't have to look very far at all to see the, the stress and the challenges that come, the economy the way it is, and the struggles that we're facing as a nation. All we really have to do is show up and be ready to represent. But I'm fearful that we will fall short. I'm fearful that we won't grasp the moment and that we'll miss the opportunity. I was reading a study uh, this week, and it was, it was defining the number of church members per uh, unchurched person that came to Christ. So it was looking at how many people it took, you know, how many pastors does it take to screw in a light bulb, so to speak, okay? How many, how many believers that are walking with Christ, how many does it take to reach a person for the gospel in the United States of America? You know what that number was? 85 to 1. Now, if that's true, and we're the average church, that means that we'll have four people come to Christ in 2009. That's a scary, scary statistic. Friends, I'm fearful that we will miss the opportunity to be ambassadors for Christ because we've forgotten that he's reconciled to us and we've forgotten that he has forgiven us and graciously pardoned our sin. The hope for Christmas future is in you and in me. And then fifthly, the hope for Christmas future is in what I call the great exchange. Actually, I stole that from Martin Luther. He's the one that originated it. Verse 21. For our sake, for your sake and for my sake. I'm going I'm to put Tom Ricks's words on this a little bit, okay? For our sake, 
God made Jesus to be sin. Even though Jesus didn't know any sin in his life, he was perfect. So that in Jesus, we might become the perfect righteousness of God. This is a time of year to try and find that perfect gift for uh, your spouse or for your child or for your, your, your neighbor, your, your business partner. I remember uh, when Nathan was in high school, probably his junior year, and I had a pair of hockey skates that were probably 15 years old, and they literally, there was nothing left to them. And I was hemming and hawing, and I didn't want to buy a new pair of skates. You know, even an average run-of-the-mill pair of skates is going to be 200 bucks, and I didn't want to spend the money, but I'm coaching hockey, and I need to get new skates, and I'm kind of, you know, talking to Cindy and trying to, what should I do? Christmas morning, I open up the gift from my then 17-year-old kid, <laughs> a pair of ice skates. My kid had saved over $200 to buy me a pair of ice skates. The perfect gift. Who, you ever heard of anybody crying over a pair of hockey skates? <laughs> if you'd been in my house this morning, you'd be like, there's really something wrong with him. <laughs> he needs some special help. But uh, I was just overwhelmed that he would go to that length to express his love for me. Now, we exchange gifts with Jesus according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. There's a great exchange that takes place. Let me tell you what you and I give to Jesus. We bring him our old tattered cloak. It's rotten. It's filthy. I don't want to make you feel bad this morning, but it's maggot infested. It's filled with greed and envy and malice. It's covered with hatred and gossip. There's some sexual immorality dripping off of it. There's a little bit of racism on the collar, gluttony, pride. The buttons are indifference and oppression. And we give this to Jesus. And we say, Merry Christmas. And Jesus isn't offended because he's the author of reconciliation. And he takes it. He says, that's God's intended purpose all along. And he puts it on. And he wears our unrighteousness. That's why that cross is here every Sunday. Because it reminds us that when God looked at the cross, as Jesus hung on it, he didn't see Jesus. He saw your face. He saw my face. He saw our tattered and filthy cloak. But Jesus says, wait a minute, don't go anyplace. I have the perfect gift for you. And Jesus takes out the purest white woven robe with the majestic righteousness of God. It's actually his perfection. It's his identity. And he puts it on us, drapes it over our shoulders. Then he stands back, as you do on Christmas morning, and you look at that child wearing their new coat or that spouse wearing the new ring or whatever it might be. And he gets a big smile on his face. He says, it's a perfect fit. I'm so glad I could give that to you. That's the exchange that took place if you're a disciple of Jesus. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, that's the exchange that he's wanting to do with you this morning. Saying, you don't have to wear that ratty old coat anymore. I have a new one for you. It's perfect. And if you want to come in and hang out with me and my dad, you got to put it on. you got to wear it. That's why we must have our outlooks realigned <laughs> to see people in a different light. That's why the change has already begun in us because God is reconciling the world through Christ by our message. That's why he has made us ambassadors of a hope and a promise. There is great hope for Christmas future. God is reconciling the world. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that paints so clearly for us the hope that is ours in Christ. Father, I fear that our temptation is to uh, leave this morning very thankful for that hope, but forgetting that you have called us to share it with others. There are people around us, people in our families, people in our businesses, people in our schools who have no hope this morning. Yes, they've gone out and bought the Christmas presents. Yes, they're going to they're gonna open the packages on Christmas, Christmas morning. But in the back of their mind, there's this dull, throbbing ache that won't go away because they keep saying to themselves, something's not right. There's got to be something more. Father, your heart through the Lord Jesus is to reconcile the world to yourself. Give us that heart that we might give the hope for Christmas future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.